we have a couple extra. Let's let's start. Um, any pr any prayer requests tonight? We have to pray for what's pray for what's going on in Las Vegas for sure and for Bob. But any prayer requests? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. The gift of yourself um, in the Mass. Um, um, your life itself that we carry within us from communion. For all the many ways you offer yourself, um, how amazing, it's even more amazing that you're here and the rest of the world doesn't know this, or doesn't, refuses to see it. You are everywhere present, always at work in our lives, and so often we don't see it. We get so preoccupied um, in the in the episode of the boat, the, the turmoil of the waves, um, disturbances, problems, um, our fallen world um, that we're um, so steeped in. Um, you are everywhere present and so often we don't see you. Um, it's going to be true in this book. I mean, we're, we're witnessing, experiencing a family falling apart, um, partly because it doesn't acknowledge you and, and we see the effects of it. Help us to take strength in all that we're learning from these writers and um, to pick up the burden of living them um, so that you're more real in our lives and that people can know you through us. Ask a special blessing on the victims in Las Vegas. Um, there's so much that seems to suggest our country is in a time of terrible crisis, in some ways may be falling apart. Um, be with the victims, um, console the survivors, um, help us as a people recover some sense of law and order <coughs> and the importance of your presence in our lives. We won't answer them without moving with you better than we do. Watch over Bob on his travels, Marcy if she's with him, um, be with us in our struggles in our own families. Um, help us to do all that we can to live with you in the face of our own weaknesses. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Sorry. Do you want to ask mercy for the shooter? I'm sorry, Doc. Do you want to ask mercy for the shooter? Oh. Wow, not particularly. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, what to say here? That's between him and God. Wait. Um, the, um, one of the questions that I'm going to ask here goes to exactly to this. Um, we're watching people give up their lives and enter into courses in which they look like they're going to hell, literally. Um, um, the last couple of weeks I've asked everybody to think about that episode in the temple with the righteous man who thought he was above needing prayers and the sinner um, who lived so fully in his sins 
you came for sinners. Um, the depth, the depth of the sin that you were atoning for is revealed in your cross. Is there anything more horrible than putting God to death? We killed you. There's something in us in our fall that carries that. Watch over these people who commit these acts of violence. Um, if forgiveness is possible for people who, who die, um, who, who actually enter into something knowing the likelihood is they're going to die without turning to you, um, help us at least carry that in our awareness of these awful crimes. Um, and forgive um, if it's your will to do that. Amen. That's difficult, Doc, with something like that. Um, but I hope that went some ways. In. Um, okay, let's, let's pick up the four quartets. Remember we started last week, Burnt Norton is a manor house in England that Elliot had visited. Each one of the titles refers to a specific place. Um, there's a history to these things. Um, I don't know that it's important that we know them, but at least to be aware of them. Remember, in the, it, um, the quartet is modeled on a quartet piece. Um, it's, it's got five parts in the first one. Eliot introduces the major theme of the quartet, which is this still point, this point of intersection between our world and the next. And as he moves through the quartet, we will be made aware of the difficulties of leaving, living before and after. That it's much easier for all of us. I, I, can't re I can't talk about these without remembering our work on the Odyssey because that was so central to our work. Remember, in the marriages there, most people look back to the wounds of the past. They carried the wounds. Um, or looked forward, hoping for something better. But nobody, nobody lived in the present. Because to live in the present means burying those wounds and somehow transforming them. Christ came to answer that. I mean, it seems to me that's the fundamental problem of Christianity. The fundamental problem that Christianity answers in the world. God comes into the world, offers himself, and opens an eternal present where there will be no more wounds, no more future, no more past. It will be an ongoing present. And we saw that in the end of the Odyssey when Odysseus and Penelope finally are reunited and they go to bed, they share their stories, have sex, <coughs> and Homer describes that moment as a moment when Athena stops time. So they, they enter into a timeless moment. That, that moment it's offered in the book. So even if the epic as a, as a genre looks back to a, a heroic past, my argument is, for those of you who've done the epics, is that in every one of those books, Homer brings us into the present, out of that past. Does it with Odysseus, he does it with um, Achilles. Virgil, I think, does it with um, Aeneas in the founding of Rome, which is the eternal city. It's, it's constantly undergoing a revolution, it's constantly renewing. Otherwise, it couldn't be eternal. Because if you remember, all the other cities in that book were dying. They were too much part of time. Rome was the eternal city. So the epics gave us this, this sense of possibilities, that something 
could be realized in the present moment that, um, that answered the wounds of the past without having to hope still for something yet. It was, was possible here now. Eliot's picking up this theme of this, what he calls this still point. And the origins of that, if you remember, I think I mentioned it last time, is Dante in the Paradiso. And Dante's on the back of the universe, and he looks at the center of the universe, and he sees, sees this point moving so fast, it's standing still. And that's an image of God everywhere present in his creation. Our God is a transcendent God and an imminent God. He's imminent. He's a part of our life. He's transcendent. He's outside of it. When Dante gets to the back of the universe, he looks there and he sees. And we're to know there's not a point anywhere in this natural order where God's not somehow present at work. The question is, can we see it? That was the whole burden of this course. Do we see God at work? Um, remember, it begins with um, these, these, it's a meditation on time, and it begins with these very abstract sort of meditative statements put in a conditional sense, perhaps if, he says, time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, right, keeps coming to the present moment over and over again, that's where we are. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If something does not come outside of time and enter time, there's no way we can escape or fall. That's the burden of the poem. And you remember he goes into, the, into our first world with the first parents. It's an image of Eden, but it, it, it superimposed in that image of Eden, the garden, is this concrete pool. I think it's suburbia. It's this attempt to go back to the garden. I, I've talked about that before. There's this memory of the garden in all of us. It haunts us. We want to go back to recover that innocence. It overlays everything we do. And he takes us there for a moment. We hear the laughter of the children, the birds, the roses that have the look of being looked at. Um, the sun passes. The, 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 um, we look into the pool. It's concrete. It's dry. It's, it's an image of the way the suburbia world always dies out. Um, the, the cloud passes. The pool's empty. And the bird says, go. Um, and, and that's how it ends. Go, go, said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. It's one of the most quoted lines from Eliot. It's hard for us, Dante knew this, it's hard for us to bear eternity in the present moment. It's much easier to live in the past or to hope in the future. But to bear, the, Christ did that, but to bear the sins here. And, and the future offered is, um, is a grave, grave thing. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. The, the lines are important for this reason. It's much easier to live in a world of abstract arguments. What could have been, what might have been, could have been this way, it could have been that. Much easier to live in our heads than, than to live an incarnated life where we incarnate love, good. It's much easier to live in the head making arguments, to live in a world of speculation. In the second section, um, he has a couple of sections, and, and in the, the burden of most of them is to show that everything in the universe is connected. 
And it, it's important to see this because in our world, we think everything's disconnected. It's all atoms flying off in space and we're all isolated individuals. But he's showing there's a relationship between what goes on in the blood and what goes on in the movement of the stars. You got that from Dante too. He talks about the axle tree. Um, I think that's an image of the cross and a tree at the, at the center. But anyway, he will give us all these images that show the interconnectedness of the most elemental things here and the most elemental things in the heaven. And then he will, he will explicitly take us to this still point. Okay, and I'll leave it at that. Okay, but, so this is just picking up the theme that was announced in the opening section. Section two. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars appeasing long forgotten wars. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph are figured in the drift of stars ascend to summer in the tree. We move above the moving tree in light upon the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boar hound and the boar pursue their patterns as before, but reconciled among the stars. That's not, I mean, that seems like an ins a throwaway section. It's not. How many people talking about Christianity would feel that talking about mud were po was poetic? Not many. Yeah. I mean, what he's doing is taking the most ordinary throwaway things and they're becoming a part of a, you know, a whole scheme of the universe in which things are related. So, it's, I mean, he's talking about a boar, or the figured leaf on the ground. Anyway, I don't want to go, because I want to, but there's no throwaway things. Eliot knows exactly what he's doing. We live in a world in which people tend to think that's not quite elevated enough for poetry. T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, who are two of the great innovators in poetry in the modern world, said there was no word, not at SH, not an F, not a, there was not a word that wasn't appropriate for poetry if it was used the right way. It's a way of saying with Christ, I mean, he came in, <laughs> this is funny, our, one of our granddaughters had her first communion a few months ago, and we got a message from Christopher Kaler, Christopher and Kaler, these are the ones that are in, in uh, Florida, Christopher teaching at Ave Maria, and, and when, when uh, Charlotte was being prepared for her first communion, I guess somebody had made the section that Christ had come down and had taken on our flesh. That is, God took on our body and her coming. Um, which part of it? What part of it? Is it I mean, I, the wheel started going in my head. Do you have these questions like some part is not appropriate? Or I mean, he came out and took on our body, all of it. Her question was, oh, sorry. which part of Christ was she receiving? She was yeah, okay, but, it, but she connected that with the body. Um, I thought it was funny because we, I think we forget he sanctified everything, you know, all parts of us, um, not just the parts that were unsexual. Or, I mean, we can't forget that. Um, and Eliot had, I think Eliot had something on his mind. There is nothing that isn't deserving of poetry if it isn't used well. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, 
neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and outer compulsion, it's surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving, erebung without motion, means exaltation. Erebung without motion, concentration without elimination, both the new world and the old made explicit, understood in the completion of its partial ecstasy, the resolution of its partial horror. Yet the enchainment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. Time past and time, time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at smokefall be remembered. Involved with past and future, only through time, time is conquered. We'll pick it up next week. It, it, it's really, it's difficult to talk about anything of what he's doing until we get through the whole thing. Because it really, it's a dense poem and there's a lot to it. So, Okay. Um, the Quentin episode. Two questions I want to throw out at you, or sorry, not the, the Jason episode. Two questions I want to put out at the beginning. Um, we've talked about how each section so far, the Quentin section, the Benji section, has its own mode of consciousness. Benji has its own idiom, his own language, his own way of experiencing the world that's peculiar to him. So the consciousness is very individual. He got that from Joyce. But I think, I think he, as a great storyteller, he went beyond. But when we're in Benji's mind, there's no question that we're there. His stream of consciousness is peculiar to him. And we become even more aware of that when we enter um, Quentin's mind, because Quentin's is so different from Benji's. He's more intellectual. He's far more abstract. Um, he's more given to classical illusions. And he's not as susceptible to memory. He actually contemplates the past. He meditates on it sometimes, even though memory's intrude. What's Jason's idiom, if I can call it that, his language, his, those qualities that, that set him off from Benji and Quentin? So I want to leave that question out. And um, the other one is, what's the action? Remember we said each story has its own action, its own plot. Um, and remember that the action is always an Im it's a, ref it's a representation of the inner life of a person that we come to by looking at the episodes, the plot. So if, whatever the plots are, whatever episodes make up the plot, that sequence of events is an imitation of an interaction. So we know the inside of a person by looking at the events. What's the, what's the Jason action? How do we, how we describe that? Um, I want to come back to those two. 
And then I want to, this to me is, is getting bigger and bigger. Um, um, I want to come back to this again, but it, it just seems to me as we move through this story, we become more aware of the spiritual collapse of a family, that this family is falling apart. Um, and we're aware of it, I think, in a more violent way in the, in the Jason episode. So um, why, why did Faulkner set all of this on Easter weekend? The Jason episode happens to take place on Good Friday. That's the night Christ put, was put to a cross. Sound of the Fury begins with a Benji episode. You know that now. That's Easter Eve. That's Saturday. Okay. Um, Saturday night is when we, when we all know, looking back, we're awaiting Christ rising. We're a step away from a risen Christ. On Easter, Good Friday, we're at the crucifixion for the sinners. God is being crucified. We put him on a cross. So um, why did Faulkner invert that sequence? Um, two sections later, now we're finally getting to Jason, even though Jason came on Good Friday before Benji's section. Why did he do that? What's he doing? So keep that in mind, because um, to me it's finally it's one of the most important questions we can ask about this work. Okay, really quick, um, as a review. Um, the major theme of the work, we can say that the major theme of the work is the disintegration of a southern family. I've I've tried to qualify that some because it seems to me in some ways what we're seeing in this southern family I think is meant to be representative of something that's happening in modernity. It's not peculiar to the south, even though the context is clearly southern. You can't mistake it as southern. The terms of it are southern, the loss of the chivalric ideal, the sense of honor, all of those things are, are far more southern than northern. But what we're watching is the onset of modernity. It's a secular family. The, the, the only one who seems to identify with Christianity is the mother, and it's hard to see her as taking Christ seriously. I mean, everything about her is full of self-pity and blaming and excusing. And so we're, we're watching a, a family um, enter the modern period and taking on modern qualities. So one of the things we can, one of the ways we can describe this book is what happens to a family when Christ is not present that, that it, it, it descends into this chaos and despair. Um, remember all the signs of it. Benji's an idiot. Uncle Maury commits adultery. Quentin commits suicide. Caddy's pregnant with an illegitimate child. She gets married to save her respectability. As soon as her husband finds out, as soon as Herbert finds out, he divorces her. The, the mother doesn't want to see her again. She says, I forbid her to come back. The father wants to make a place for her, but the mother says, choose, I'm going to leave, or, or don't ever mention her name again. The father goes to bring the illegitimate child home to care for it, and we know what happens. I mean, the mother's not present. Um, Dilsey, 
virtually raises her as a mother, with Jason as a, as a father. Um, um, and we're, we're, we're made aware early on that she grows up to be just as promiscuous as Caddy. Um, what we see in both women is some, I want to come back to this because to me it's really important. There's not a place for women in this world. And one of the reasons there's no place for women in this world is because there's no place for men. The defining image of each one of those man, men is a woman. It defines their lives. And there's no way they can relate to that woman as they traditionally were encouraged to see her. And they all go mad. I mean, they're all on the verge of insanity in some form or another. And so we're left to ask this question, what's happening with modernity and the loss of these traditional values? Where, how does man identify himself in this modern world? And conversely, what's the role of woman? Take these men and the take men and the honor code away. Take a chivalric code away. What happens to women? Sex promiscuity. We're in the modern world, so I don't think this is just peculiarly southern. I really believe it's an image of modern America and the West, and I, I, I will come to that a little bit more broadly in a minute. Um, There are three governing perspectives that I think are really important for us to keep in mind, and we could lose sight of them if we just focus on the themes, the, the subject matter, what's going on. One of them is that there's this fundamental conflict between North and South. It, um, it always existed. It's, it, by the way, I hope it's clear. It, it had to pre predate the Civil War, right? Or the Civil War would have never taken place. So it was always there. After the Civil War, um, the assumption was that conflict was resolved. But it wasn't because, nor as we've seen from Melville and um, Moby Dick and Go Down Moses, there are fundamental differences between North and South. Fundamental differences. And they're played out here, even though not in, a, in an obvious way. But we see it in, the, um, in, in a very focused ways in the relationship between Jefferson as a communal world and Harvard as a northern academic world, which has a strong banking interest. Gerard goes there, um, who can't be more contemptuous of women than he is. Um, um, Herbert went there, cheated, cheated cards, was thrown out of his club game. So in the Harvard world, we see a northern world given to banking interest, self-interest. Herbert says to Quentin, um, when he comes for that visit. Um, as you grow older, you'll learn about the world. You have to make your way, and the world for him is dog-eat-dog, dog and um, you do what you have to do to get ahead. The South has always been very communal, um, agrarian, closer to nature. So the differences are fundamental. So one of the things we have to keep in mind here is the difference between the, har the world of Harvard, a northern world, and Jefferson, a communal agrarian world. I don't think it's an accident that Quentin committed suicide in the North. He's not at home. He, he, we can say he lost his home. He has nowhere. He's a, man without a, he's a man without an identity or a past. He's doing everything he can to escape that past. Another um, defining, governing perspective um, comes into focus when we look at what happens between Damity's death and Quentin's running away. 
So much of the language that the mother uses to talk about herself and her daughters is in terms of a lady, that is a lady. She was raised to be horrified at these things. She can't, she can't, she's horrified at her daughter's actions. She, she thinks her daughter is a part of God's punishment on her. Um, Quentin, Caddy runs away. Quentin runs away. So between Damity's death and the running away of Quentin, I think we're meant to see this is a loss of that old traditional way of life. In the South, it's Southern, it's plantation, it's agrarian, it's, there's a chivalric honor code in place. Those are not defining ideals of the North. But in that period, we're watching a family collapse. Damity looks back to an old world, defined largely in terms, for a woman, largely in terms of being a lady, a genteel lady, mannered, respectable, part of a community. Caddy, Quentin, are outcast, no place. There's no place for women. When those traditional ideals go, what's left? Um, I mean, we really are left in an awful place at the end of this novel. I mean, I'm asking the question, how do men see themselves in this world when those traditional values go? How do, how do women see themselves? Um, so there are much deeper, larger perspectives going on than just the decline of a family, although it, it takes place behind, I mean, within this family. Um, I want to look at, I want to look at this one passage. One of the things that I've suggested is going on um, in, in, these, in these schemes, if you want to call them, or enveloping action, the, um, the division between North and South, the conflict between North and South, um, the the decline of the family from Damity's death to um, Quentin's flight. Um, the third one is um, what seems to me a, a um, faint intimations of a Calvinistic religious view that we saw um, in Melville, Melville's Moby Dick in the North and also in, in Faulkner's Go Down Moses. Um, and let me read a couple of lines just to su suggest it's never explicitly identified. Um, we don't see it in the religious practices of the family, but it seems to me we can see it as effects. That there's a certain way of looking at the world it, in terms of blacks and whites. Um, I think that has its origins there. I hope that's a little bit clearer than I'm making it right now because there's a lot behind it. In medieval Catholicism, um, faith and reason were understood to be um, dovetail each other because they both came from the same source in God. And you know that through the Middle Ages, the, the secular way of looking at the world was largely classical. It was Greek and Roman. Our philosophy came from Greece. St. Thomas, Aristotle, Plato, St. Thomas, all of that. Up through the Middle Ages, Christianity was classic in nature. After the Reformation, it becomes romantic self-centered and dissociated from the past. Um, the Catholic view, um, be because it began with an acceptance of nature, that nature was good, and that part of our struggle here on earth that was natural, separate from faith, was to try to become virtuous, meant we could struggle to become virtuous and we could watch ourselves change by degrees. We get better and better and better at something. In the modern world, certainly in a Protestant world, you know it's fundamentally 
saved or not saved. Jesus Christ is my Savior. It's, it's done. So a black-white way of looking at the world substituted a world of gradations, of qualifications, of looking at things more carefully, um, of, of under, assuming that virtue and love were compatible, that we were, we were meant to try to become virtue, to work towards becoming virtue, so we could see stages in it, work patiently towards it. In the modern world, we tend to live in black-white abstractions. That's the way people see things, that's the way they argue, it's the way they view each other. That's very different from a medieval Catholic view. Um, so take a look at, take, turn to 10, turn to 10, I think it's on page 101. It's, uh, I'm going to read through this because it's, it's a little bit long, but let me just pick up some of the passage here. This way of looking at things is, the father's very cynical. The, the father sees almost nothing but black. He can't find good anywhere. The mother is, um, she sees things in black and white terms, and, um, and I'll wait on it because you've, you've read her and you know, but I want to read these. But it seems to me we get a hint of something Calvinistic in, in her religious outlook. And I say that about her because the father's not religious. He doesn't identify it with Christianity. She does. On the bottom of 101, um, Quentin has just returned to Harvard. He will leave again, as you know, and he'll meet the girl, and um, you know what happens there. But here he goes back, and he meets Shreve, who tells him that Mrs. Bland had left a note for him in, the, in, the, in his room, and he says, you'll read it, at the bottom of 101. It's there from Semiramis. By the way, she was the wife of... Um, Ninus, who was the founder of Babylon. So she was a very seductive woman, a woman given to power. And in that sense, she's an exact description. She's a classical illusion that's appropriate for Mrs. Bland, because you remember, she's just full of herself, her wealth, wanting to throw parties and have wine, and what you do to be a gentleman. <coughs> All right, I'll get it. Wonder what she wants now. Another band recital. This is Shreve making, every, he, he's mocking her. Get the band going to announce that Mrs. Bland is coming, you know. Another band recital, I guess, trumpety da 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 Gerald Blah, because all the mother does is talk about Gerald. She just keeps talking about how great a boy he is. God. A little louder on the drum, Quentin. God, I'm glad I'm not a gentleman. Here it is. This is the, this is the northern corruption of an ideal that went back to the Middle Ages. He went on nursing a book, a little shapeless, fate, flat, fatly intent, the street plants. Do you think so because one of our forefathers was a governor and there were generals and mothers weren't? 102, any live man is better than any dead man, but no live or dead man is very much better than any other live or dead. Because to the father, he's indifferent. One man is just, you can't even say one man's just as good. It's almost as if he's saying one man's just as bad as another. His view is so negative. Um, go to the bottom of 102. The car came up and stopped. The bells were still ringing the half hour. I got on and it went on again. He's setting off again and he's reminded of his mother and what's behind all of this is this ideal of a gentleman and its loss and the relationship between a mother and a son. What Mrs. Bland does with Gerald and what his mother does with him. 102. What have I done to have been given children like these? Benjamin was punishment enough. 
And now for her to have no more regard for me, her own mother, I've suffered for her, dreamed and planned and sacrificed. I went down into the valley, yet never since she opened her eyes has she given me one unselfish thought at times. I look at her, I wonder if she can be my child, except Jason. He has never given me one moment's sorrow. I, I, I find, at least for myself, it, I find it hard to read this without thinking. She created Jason. He, he is the embodiment as a son of everything that's wrong with her as a mother. Um, except Jason, never giving me one moment sorrow since I first held him in my arms. I knew then that he was to be my joy and my salvation. I thought that Benjamin was punishment enough for any sins I've committed. There's that Old Testament view to look at him because of his birth effect as a punishment from God. So it was already there before anything happened. I mean, that to me is so Calvinistic. Uh, was punishment enough for any sins I've committed? I thought he was my punishment for putting aside my pride and marrying a man who held himself above me. I don't complain. I loved him above all of them. Because of it, because of my duty, she loved him. I, I mean, find an expression of her love for him. Jason pulling at my heart all the while, but I see now that I have not suffered enough. I see now that I must pay for your sins as well as mine. What have you done? What sins has your high and mighty people visited upon me? But you'll take up for them. You always have found excuses for your own blood. And, it, and as it so often does, it goes back to the differences between her as a Bascom and Jason as a Compson. That she feels wounded, slighted, because she married a man that she thinks looks down on her because of her family ties. Jason can do no wrong because he's more Baskin than Compson. God, well, your own daughter. So what she's saying is the blood determines everything. And we keep getting that over and over and over again. Um, you have no choice in the world. It was predetermined. You're of that bloodline. That's what you become. I was taught that there's no halfway ground, that a woman is either a lady or not, but I never dreamed when I held her in my arms that any daughter of mine could let herself... Don't you know I can look at her and I tell you, um, may think she'd tell you, but she doesn't tell things. She is secretive. You don't know her. I know things she's done that I'd die before I'd have you know. Um, that's it. Go on, criticize Jason. Accuse me of setting him to watch her. Um, go down a few lines. Um, Maura, you cannot hurt me any more than your children already have, and then I'll be gone, and Jason, with no one to love him, shield him from this kind. I look at him every day, dreading to see this constant blood beginning to show in him at last, with his sister slipping out to see what do you call... She clearly looks at this as an, an infection. She wants to get away. She wants to get Jason away, because that's the only way he can be saved. Because being around this family will destroy the son that she so adores. Him, you will even let me try to find out. This is the top of 104. It's not for myself. I couldn't bear to see him. It's for your sake to protect you. But who can fight against bad blood? You won't let me try. We are to sit back with our hands folded while she not only drags your name in the dirt, but corrupts the very air your children breathe. Jason, you must let me go away. I cannot stand it. Let me go. Let me have Jason. And you keep the others. They're not my flesh and blood like he is. Strangers, nothing of mine, and I'm afraid of them. I can take Jason and go nowhere. We are not known. I'll go down on my knees and pray for absolution of my sins, that he may escape this curse. Try to forget that others ever were. 
What a horrible religious view. Um, it's a bloodline. I mean, her way of understanding it, it's fixed. Um, sh the very fact that they're of that way darkens them. There's nowhere in her understanding of God any sense that God is a merciful God, that he came for sinners. We could go on and on um, to, through the next few pages, but I just wanted to give... You know that Caddy um, says she'd rather go to hell. Quentin wants to kill them, both of them, and go to hell. Um, um, Quentin, Caddy's daughter, at the end when she's in the car with Jason says, I'm bad, I'm evil. Um, she's ready to go to hell. So there is nowhere in this family or apparently what surrounds them any sense that God came for sinners or that he came to offer mercy where there was sin. There's just this sense, well, I, had, I'm not, I don't want to go into this. Um, I had a, um, an experience on, I better... I had a recent experience in which a woman looked at the difficulties she was having with her children and said she saw Satan in one of them. When I said to her, take care, there's such a habit, if people are not as good as we want them to be, to see only the worst. And I don't think that's peculiar to characters here. I think, I think that's part of our fall and it's one of the struggles we have. Except here, it's so amplified. We can't miss it. It's so dark. So we're, we're, we're watching a family. Remember, the, the, the source of this was Macbeth. He quoted those lines about the sound and the fury when he realized that everything was falling apart. We're watching a family fall apart, and there's no way to be aware of it without being aware that there is no God present, and wherever there is a God, the view of him is very dark. It's Old Testament. It's legalistic. There is no mercy. This is not a loving, forgiving God. This is a dark God. Um, more Old Testament. I think there's a lot of Testament in it. I mean, no, I mean, if you look at you know all the bad things that happen, you know, God punishing the Jews, etc., etc., for all the things that they've done. This whole thing, besides the self falling apart, the family falling apart. I mean, this is just a downhill slide. Yeah. I mean, the wagon's going downhill, it's just falling off less. Right. <laughs> yes. And then it's just the way she sees it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, that that's there's a lot of Old Testament, but I, I the mother sees herself as a Christian. Dilsey's a Christian. Um, the mother sees herself that way. It, it, to, to me, the question is, she belongs to a Christian culture. It's in collapse. How, what's what? What is the source of this way of looking at God? And I and I I think we have to take that seriously. My own, you know, from the work we did on Moby Dick and Go Down Moses, that I that I think the origins of this are with the reformers and a, a dark view that enters the West. Then um, I want to I want to just quickly summarize the Jason section, and then I want to come back to um, um, the difference between the Jason section and the Quentin and. Um, and um, Benji section. So let me just very quickly go through the Jason section, summarize it, and I want to I want to read some quotes just to give you a feel for this man. Um, and ask we've got to ask this question: If we feel bad for him, 
how bad should we feel? <laughs> and how, what do we, I wanted to hold this up because I don't want to color you, but there's, 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 you're going to get a really dark presentation of Jason in just a second. There are things that he does that are really evil and blatantly evil. He wants to hurt people. He's, he's mean throughout consistently. What do we do with a man who, who, who so consistently wants to wound people? There's no, so, but let me hold off on that. I, I want to look at, I want to go through the section. To, so um, let me just pick out some passages, but, but summarize it as we go along, just so everybody's clear in what we're, what we're dealing with with Jason. On page 180, the section begins, Doc, remind me if I forget when I, when I get through with this whole section about your comment about that he's right. Just because um, I may forget. The very beginning of the section, April 6th, this is, this is Good Friday. Why Good Friday? Once a bitch, always a bitch, what I say. I says you're lucky if... If her playing out of school is at all that worries you, I says she ought to be drawn down there in that kitchen right now instead of up there in a room gobbing paint on her face and waiting for six niggers that can't even stand up out of a chair unless they've got a, pa a pan full of bread and meat to balance them to fix breakfast for her. And mother says, but to have had the... Now just uh, Characterize Jason in this... Somebody, characterize Jason just in that opening sentence. A mar yeah, for sure. That's, but he's full of contempt. And actually, I'm going to say it now. I'm giving this away, but let me just... It just seems to me there's a lot of truth to what this man says. He's right on on a lot of criticisms. He, honestly, she's a bitch. Um, <laughs> she's, um, you can find almost nothing he says that doesn't have an element of truth. The difficulty is the spirit that he brings to it is horrible. It's mean. It's vicious. And I'll, and I'll get back. To, anyway, um, he, has he has nothing but contempt for people everywhere around him. Um, he goes down. He fights with Quentin and Dilsey at breakfast table. He tells her that he's going to make her go to school. The mother wants her to go to school. She's been cutting. And they get into a fight. Um, Dilsey tries to intervene, and um, she slaps her away and calls her a nigger. And if you remember at the very end of the Benji section, when on Saturday, remember when, when, remember when Benji gets home, and they come to dinner, and Quentin was at the swing, and she runs away and goes in the house, and they have dinner, and she makes that comment when, um, when Benji wants the slipper, and she said she calls him a pig. Says, why do I have to eat with this pig? He he should be sent to Jackson, to Jackson, to the insane asylum. So Quentin herself is nasty and mean. I mean, she 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 calls she slaps Dilsey away and says, "Get away from me, nigger!" And she calls Benji a pig. She says, "Why do we have to eat with pigs at this table?" Um, they quarrel, um, and. 
Jason takes her to school. They quarrel in the car. She threatens to take off her dress when he makes it clear that the only reason she has clothes is because he buys them. Um, he goes to work. He reads the letter from Maury asking for money. He complains about the Jews taking, the Eastern Jews, the banking interest Jews who take the money away from him. Periodically during the day, he goes back and checks on the stocks. And if you followed it, you know that they were up early in the morning. They immediately go down. Um, late in the afternoon when he checks with them, they, they drop significantly, significantly enough that the brokers advise him to sell. And his first response is buy, which is telling. Um, contrary, I mean, he's just a very, very spiteful person. Um, go to 196.210. This is one of the... Um, think about this for a moment. Benji has nothing but memories. His memories are so interspersed with events of the day that you almost cannot separate them. There's no time for Benji, right? He can't recognize time. They're as much a part of the present as they were back 20 years. So in Benji, the yeah, Benji episode, we keep having these involuntary memories. They're one with his life in the present now. In Quentin, um, Quentin is constantly um, recalling exchanges with his father, for sure, um, and his mother that are all embarrassing. And then there are those scenes at the end of the section where, remember when he's unconscious, we talked about this, he's out and the two longest um, stream of consciousness memories take place then. The one is that scene at the branch where he holds a knife to Cat, Caddy's throat and says, let's kill ourselves and we will go to hell. And then he recalls the um, episode with um, Dalton Ames on the bridge where he warns him to get out of town and Dalton Ames shoots that little piece of bark and, and is all the while very solicitous. He picks him up and, and Quentin fates. He passes out and wants to know what happened. Um, so Quentin is constantly um, drawn back to the past. And if, if I'm reading those, those two long um, recollections properly, it seems to me those are defining because you remember the form changed. We get it in phrases. They're not, they're, they're not blurred. They're not a part of his conscious thought. They are distinct and separate. And, and those take place when he's unconscious, when he's been knocked down. I think that's Faulkner's way of showing he's in the deepest part of his unconscious and those are defining things in him. The, 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 wanting, to, the wanting to be alone with Caddy, even if it meant going to hell. To, to possess her for himself. And the dishonor he experienced when he tried to go up against Dalton Ames and was humiliated. His honor code was in some sense shattered. His sense of honor himself. Um, so unlike Benji and Quentin, Jason rarely goes back in the past. I think we can say that he does not bear the past. He doesn't carry it forward. He tends to live in the, in, the, in the present moment governed by practical concerns. He wants to get things done. He wants to make well, money. It seems to me like he keeps going back to the past. He does, but I, I don't think they dwell. I mean, I'm going to look at some. But if, I think if we compare, at least for me as I read it, if we set him next to Benji and Quentin, it's impossible to look at those two figures and not say, that past is so present in them. They, it weighs them down. Now let me let me wait a minute, Karen. See, because I want to. I think there's a motive to what Benji, or I mean, uh, what Jason does with his 
memories, but wait on it, because he does go back to the past. I'm going to read it right now, but, I, but, I, but it takes a very different form. Um, let me look at two, on page 196, two of these. Earl tells him to go back to work and wait on this lady at the top of 196. He says, well, Jason likes work. I says, no, I never had university advantages because at Harvard they teach you how to go for a swim at night without knowing how to swim. How vicious. That's his brother who committed suicide. I mean, can there be anything more? Sarcasm doesn't even, that's a sneer. That's not sarcasm, that's a sneer. It is so full of arrogance. They, don't, um, they teach you how to go for a swim at night without knowing how, that's the way men or women sneer at something while they're appearing not to say anything harmful. Um, um, he reminds his mother of how he's the one who's working to keep everything afloat and he gets the mother talking again. Um, he, um, this is one of his longer recollections. He, go back, he goes back into the past where Murray, Uncle Murray is, Murray is trying to sue the mother when she's becoming distraught um, at the top of 197. Out the door just in time to see Dilsey driving Ben and TP back around the corner. We went down the steps and got in. Uncle Murray kept saying, poor little sister, poor little sister, talking around his mouth and patting mother's hand talking around whatever it was. You can see him. He's such a parasite, sort of sympathetically patting her, but it, it's all so he can milk her and not have to do anything while he lives off of them. Um, this is the scene where father, the father brings um, Quentin home at the bottom of 197. So he kept on patting her hand and saying, poor little sister, patting her hand with one of the black gloves that we got the bill four days later because it was the 26th. Money is a pre an obsession with him because it was the same day one month later that father went up there and got it and brought it home and wouldn't tell anything about where she was or anything and mother crying and saying, and you didn't even see him? You didn't even try to get him to make any provision for it? She, she wanted the father to go up to negotiate a deal so that the marriage would be, the marriage would be spared, um, saved. And father says, no, she shall not touch his money, not one cent of it. And mother says, he can be forced by law. He can prove nothing unless Jason Compson, she says, were you fool enough to tell that if she would have kept it a secret that the child was not Herbert's because she didn't want to lose the money. And now she's blaming her husband thinking that the reason Herbert knew is because the husband told. Um, so she's blaming him. Hush, Caroline, father says. And then he sent me for, to help Dilsey. It goes on. Um, at the bottom of 198. You don't know, mother says, to have my own daughter cast off by her husband. Poor little innocent baby, she says, looking at Quentin. You will never know the suffering you've caused. At the So... And remember, at the, at the end of this Jason section, Quentin's going to blame Jason and says, you made me do this. Now here's the mother at the outset when she's an infant saying, look at the, look at the problems you've caused. I mean, there's that dark sense. It's predestined. It's, it's set. It's done. It's fixed. This child will do nothing but bring grief. That's the mother's way of looking at it. Hope, mercy, suffering with, 
It's not there. That is that it. There's a Christ is absent. I mean, if Christ it means suffering with mercy, bringing it. Remember, we've talked about this from Dante. The greatest struggle we have is bringing justice and mercy together, one with that. Jason's right a lot of the time. What's wrong is he just has no mercy, no forgiveness. One without the other is, is, is a mess. Trying to bring the two of them together, it's so hard. Um, will you never know the suffering? You will never know the suffering you've caused. Hush, Caroline, father says. What you want to go on like that for Jason for Dizzy says, I've tried to protect him, Mother says. I've always tried to protect him from it. At least I can do my best to shield her. Is there any reason, is there any wonder why Jason is the way he is? God. How sleeping in this room going to hurt her? I like to know, Dizzy says. I can't help it, Mother says. I know I'm just a troublesome old woman. But I know that people cannot flout God's laws with impunity. Nonsense, Father says. Fix it in Miss Caroline's room then, Dizzy. You can say nonsense, Mother says, but she must never know. She must never even learn the name. Dilsey, I forbid you ever to speak that name in her hearing. She could grow up never to know that she had a mother. I would thank God. Um, So we go back to that episode, um, and then we go back to the episode. um, This is the, it seems to me, one of the most painful in the book. Um... Um, this is the occasion of the father's funeral. Do you remember? The funeral is over. Everybody's leaving, and Quentin or J- J- Jason sees Caddy hiding behind the tombstones, and she comes out and she approaches him and says she wants to see her daughter. The father was um, died in 1912, so she's um, what is she 90? She was. 19, or 18, 1891, so she's 20, what, 21, 21, 22, somewhere in there. She comes back and she wants to see her daughter. This is 1912. She, the daughter's been away for a year. She gave it up 1911. So she hasn't seen her daughter in a year. She wants to come back and see her child. She goes to him and offers him money to see her Jason agrees to let her just have a minute. When he, when he declines first, she increases the amount, offers to give him more, and finally he agrees. On page 204, it describes him sneaking home, sneaking the child out, wrapping it up in a coat, and then taking it, and then asking this uh, mink, I don't know if this is Mink Snopes, um, who will be a major figure. I don't think it is, but it may be Mink Snopes in the trilogy. Huh? Where else would you get another person? In the South. Um, he asks him to drive so he can hold up the child. So he can, he can say, and this is very Old Testament, excuse me, because he, he's so legalistic that he, he really, he does hold to a law. And he does see things with so much truth so often, but the spirit that he brings to them. What is, about the fact that he actually did it? Wait, okay, let's see it. Hold hold on. Okay, here, hold on. Let's read it. Okay. (laughs) He's got the child in his arm. I found Uncle Murray's raincoat, put it around her, picked her up, go off. I saw her standing on the corner under the light, and I told Mink to drive close to the walk. And when I said go on to give the team a bat, then I took the raincoat off her and held her to the window, and Caddy saw her and sort of jumped forward. She wanted to come up and look at her child. 
hit him, Mink says, and Mink gave them a cut. He whips it so the child gets, I mean, Caddy gets a glimpse as they fly by. Yeah. Okay, now just hold on. No. You describe for me Jason's motives at this moment. Well, that's cruel. It is cruel, no? But he did it. Well, he, but that's it's what like I mean. He satisfied the agreement. That's what I mean, that he's so legalistic. I mean, he, he, one of the things I'll come to in a minute, he, well, I want to, he does these things. He's very self-righteous. He, he, he follows the law. He sees the truth a lot, but the spirit in which he does things is horrible. He's a mean, mean, vicious man. Yeah, yeah, a lot like in some ways, yeah, some ways even, I, th I think in some ways even more vicious than Shylock. Uh, he's just, there's a Christian spirit that entered, I mean, you're on the verge of it with Shylock, and, but, I mean, you're right, I mean, that's a good, but there's something more uniformly vicious in everything he does. Mm -hmm. This is like scourge, the scourging of Christ. It, no, it, it's the good body section and it's like, that's a scourge to her. I was wondering, does the scourge take place on Friday or Saturday, according to our... Scourging is on Good Friday. 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 Is it on Friday? The is on Friday. It's the way of the cross. And the harrowing? No, right, I'm thinking of the harrowing. And the, but, yeah. Sorry, I was thinking, harrowing takes place when? Saturday. Holy Saturday. Saturday, yeah, that's what Why I thought. the harrowing? I don't know about it. You go down to hell. Oh, that's yeah. what they call it, okay. Harrowing. <laughs> As he goes down to hell and comes Pull out again. The, the souls that are worthy of God's okay. heroin. It's like a, Adam? huh? The apostles Adam? prayed. He died and goes to hell. It's yeah, heroin is like what a. It's like a rubbing a, um, a, a sore, a wound that it's. I mean, it's stirring up all this stuff in hell because he goes down and brings up um, the the ones who will be resurrected or saved and. I've never heard it that. Yeah, but I, 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 I mean, I think what you said about the scourging is really good because I I kept thinking. Um, how, how do we identify what happens with Benji on f Saturday with the harrowing? But leave that. I want to wait on that. But I, th I think that's a good. So, um, so he he, re he recalls and he goes to the store. A number of things happen here that I, I don't want to take time with. He goes to get checks because he's run out of them. Because as you know, he keeps taking Caddy's money that she sends, and he takes. Um, other checks and writes in amounts and takes them to Caroline who burns them. So he takes Caddy's money and banks it for himself and Caroline continues now the satisfaction of thinking she's not taking any money from this daughter that that she doesn't see. That's interesting. In this world nobody can escape getting fixed. The mother will not see that daughter as having any hope. Right? She will never take money from her. Um... And Jason will do everything he can not to let the two meet. I mean, people get stuck in this way of looking at people and they don't move. Um, so he, he, he takes care of the money order. Caddy or Quentin had come in that same day and she, Jason forced her to sign over the money order and so he could take it um, and cash it. He goes home for lunch. He comes back. Um, he sees the stock market again, and he happens to see Quentin with this guy with the red tie. He follows them, he can't find them, he goes home again, he comes back to town, and this time he sees them in a car, and he chases them. And um, he gets lost, um, he 
finds himself again and then stops the car when he finds their car, gets out and looks for them, expecting to catch them in the sexual act. He wants, he, he wants to damn them. He wants to catch them while they're doing it. He's determined to, um, to find them wrong. Um, he hears their car take off again. He returns to his car and finds that his fl tire is flat, that they let tire air out of it. He has to go off to a farm and he gets home late. Um, on 261, just very quickly. The top of 261. This is the mother complaining again about life being a judgment on her. The bottom of 260. I wanted you, you and she to get along with one another, she says. But she has inherited all of the headstrong traits. Quentin's too. Um, Caddy was had a, um, an illegitimate child. Quentin committed suicide. She's convinced that that was in the blood, that there was something wrong with both of them. So they were doomed from the start. One of the questions we have to ask here is, did she herself assume that the two committed incest? I don't know. That may be stretching it. I just throw it out. Some people conjecture that. I mean, it's a, it's a loose thing. But certainly the mother sees the two of them as fundamentally flawed, that they share that bad blood. I thought at the time with the heritage she would already have to give her that name too. Sometimes I think she is the judgment of both of them upon me. Good Lord, I says, you've got a fine mind. No wonder you keep yourself sick all the time. What she says, I don't understand. I hope not, I says. A good woman misses a lot. She's better off without knowing. They were both that way, she says. They would make interest with your father against me when I tried to correct them. He was always saying they didn't need controlling. They already knew what cleanliness and honesty were. They're the ideals of that respectable world. Cleanliness, honesty. Not sanctity, not holiness, not virtue, not virtue, not mercy, not love. Cleanliness and honesty. Which was all that anyone could hope to be taught. And now hope um, he's satisfied. You've got Ben to depend on, it says, cheer up. They deliberately shut me out of their lives. She says, it was always her and Quentin. They were always conspiring against me, against you too, though you were too young to realize it. They always looked on you and me as outsiders, like they did your Uncle Maury. Go down. It was vanity and her, vanity and false pride. And then when their troubles began, I knew that Quentin would feel that he had to do something just as bad. It, it just, it, it's hard for me to see her not wondering whether the two committed incest. And you know that Quinn goes to his father and says that to protect her, um, uh, believing that that's going to help. Um, he could have controlled her, she says. He seemed to be the only person she had inner consideration for, but that's a part of the judgment too, I suppose. It's all negative. Um... Jason, um, he's come home for dinner and is expecting Quentin to be home because school's out by now. She's not home right away, but just, she does arrive home. And when she does sit down for dinner, Jason tells the story of having given his car to a, a man um, who, um, let's see, how was it? whose sister's husband 
was out with a, with a woman from town. It was his way of covering up his chasing Quentin. So he's indirectly telling his, his mom about what happened without letting her know that it was Quentin herself. But Quentin is feeling guilty and ashamed because Jason is indirectly exposing her. And then this, the, the chapter ends with her um, accusing um, Jason again of, of mistreating her. Um, um, she says on 260, um, why does he treat me like this? Um, why does he do this? Um, at the top of the page, it's his fault, she says, she jumped it. He makes me do it. If he would just, and she looked at us, her eyes cornered, kind of jerking her arm against her sides. If I would just what, I says, whatever I do, it's your fault, she says. If I'm bad, it's because I had to be. You made me. I wish I was dead. I wish, I, I wish we were all dead. Then she ran. Um, Jason, it's the first sensible thing she's ever said. Um, the mother knows that she didn't um, go to school that day. Um, Jason will have a few more words with his mother and then she goes off to bed and locks Quentin's door and um, it, it describes Jason at the end 263 when I finished my cigar and went up the light was still on I could see the empty keyhole but I couldn't hear a sound she studied quiet maybe he goes to check his money again and then he he, he finishes the evening um, with thoughts about the, um, the Eastern Jews who are cheating him um, at the bottom of the page, 263. But then I don't reckon even that would do any good. Um, like I say, once a bitch, always a bitch. And just let me have 24 hours with any of them damn New York Jews to advise me what it's going to do. I don't want to make a killing, save that to suck in the smart gamblers with. I just want an even chance to get my money back. And once I've done that, they can bring all Beale Street and all Bedlam in here, and two of them can sleep in my bed, and another one can have my place at the table, too. Now, quickly, just um, two, two, three, two major thoughts. The first one is here. How is, how is the Jason section different from the, the Benji and the... Um, Quentin section. Remember we said that um, if, you, if we look at the sections, Benji has his own language, his own images, his own idiom, his own way of thinking. Quentin has his. Um, what, is, what is Jason's? Number one and number two is what's the action of the Jason section? We said each one had a plot. We have to see it as a, as a completed action. It says something about that character. Let's take that one first. What's the plot? If if the Quentin, if sorry, if the Ben, if the Benji plot is desire, waiting. He he he's constantly waiting for Caddy at the gate. Everything he does is defined by that gate. Uh, whenever he hears the word Caddy, it sends him off. Um, he wants to go outside to wait for her. When they get to the gate, he wants to go there. So in Benji, we see desire waiting. And um, we saw that Caddy was the only one who tried to get him to speak, and he couldn't speak. 
He had no words, he could not speak, and yet we have that whole section. And my suggestion was um, that he has no words to say what he wants to say anyway. That what's at the center of his soul is this profound longing for this sister, this deep longing. He has no words for it. I'm not even sure I love you is enough. There is this profound longing. I, I liken it to the deer panting for water, you know, in the Old Testament. So if Benji is longing, um, desiring to be with Caddy, um, and, and not having the words to express what he feels, and Quentin is desired defeated, he's been humiliated, he idealizes his sister, and I would say that Faulkner is partly uncovering the honor code in the South, that behind it is this profound egotism. He idealizes her, he makes her into something that she's not. In fact, he even creates the story where he says, let's tell them this. He wants to make up the story to make it real and says, we can say this. He would rather have a fiction than live with the humiliation of this sin. So this noble ideal is, is being shattered in front of us. What we see is that behind it is this awful egotism. We saw this in Dante, in the Siren episode, that all of us have this tendency to idealize something, to romanticize it, to make it something that it's not, and when we find out what it is, it, it's a crushing moment. So Benji is desire waiting and wanting to find words to speak to it. Quentin is desire defeated. He, he longs to have this ideal world, to be an honor, to, to live up to this chivalric ideal, to be an honorable brother. And he does these twisted things to protect that. He wants to lie about, to, to say they committed incest, as if that's going to save them. Um, what, how do we describe the action of the Jason? Well, he shows the, the corruption, the downfall of the family and ultimately of the southern area. That's what I think. Yeah. I always thought it was cursed. The, you do? Yeah, because it's almost, the, the, everything that I read about this, the, almost every line of what I could figure out, um, he was mad about having to be the parent or the adult. It was like he was angry for his place in the family. He was. Yeah, because yeah. he felt like he had to do everything. And I, and I mean, it was. it's almost like a cur he felt cursed to be where he was at. So everything was always in the negative. Nothing was good. You know, why do I have to do this? Why? It's always a, uh, he just, I think, it, that, that, when that, you that's the, the thing that... Yeah, that when way. you put it that way, it sounds to me awfully Old Testament. I mean, to say it was cursed means it was all predestined from the beginning, that he, that we can't hold him, wait, wait, we can't hold him responsible because this is all beyond his control and he couldn't do anything about it except suffer and complain like his mom. <laughs> he, he objectifies whoever he comes in contact with. He calls Benji a gelding. He calls the woman a bitch. He, he objectifies and dehumanizes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. Big. yeah. Everyone he's, he comes in contact with. Uh, Describe the action then, isn't it just that way? Just. Um, well, he exploits. First, he objectifies. Then he can, you know, exploit the person yeah. for his own gain. Yeah. So I would say exploitation. Yeah. 
How does that square with what you said at the beginning? I'm wondering where you are with this now. Uh, well, I, um, I don't know. I had to think about it. <laughs> this is going to be a tough question. I've, we've got to come back to this. Um, next, next class, I've got to come back to this. Why Christ and what does it mean to redeem sinners? Because ben, Jason, it seems to me you, it's hard not to feel bad for him, but he's so mean. In my mind, it's not... It's 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 easy also to say he gets what he deserves. I mean, he's just a vicious man. Um, but I want to hold off on that. I would say, Joan, that um, that the action is. I mean, I thought you put objectify, and then how did you? And then what? The exploit. exploit. I would say this. He had, and let me go back to this again, or come to this. That Jason is an image of modern man in the sense that he's dis- deracinated, uprooted, completely uprooted. There's almost nothing linking him with the past, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. There's almost nothing linking him to the past. Benji and Quentin are, are linked to the past through desire. Anyway, Jason is modern, unerotic man. He doesn't desire anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I think... Joan's right on when she says, you know, he objectified the, um, what's the woman's, Lorraine, the prostitute. Mm-hmm. Um, he, will not, he will not keep a letter. He will burn it. The mother is a banking interest for him. There's almost nothing he does during the day that, that, isn't, that doesn't involve looking at time because he wants to know what time it is. He wants to get home. He clocks in. He gets out. If things don't go exactly the way he wants, he plays a victim. He martyrs himself. Below, beneath all of that, I'm going to say, there is in Jason's soul, if there's any desire at all, it's a desire to wound, to hurt. The defining center of his life is catty, the way it is for everybody else. And he cannot be more angry than he is because he sees her as the reason for losing his job. Herbert would have given him that banking job. He thinks his life would have been settled. And it, he, it, he never, it was, he wasn't entitled to it. Herbert was buying him off, and Herbert only offered it because of okay. Caddy. That's right. And yet he acts entitled, like it was his. In Dante's hell, he, he would be among the most proudful, and there's nothing that he doesn't do with his pride. He cheats, he lies, he blames, he wounds constantly. The motive of everything he does during that day is vengeance. He wants to get back at people. He complains endlessly where things don't go the way he wants. So in Jason, we're seeing modern man living in his intellect, in his head, no heart, little desire except to hurt. The, the two, it seems to me, the two most wounding episodes in this thing, besides what happens with Quentin and Caddy at the branch, that's, I mean, no violence takes place. But in that episode, when he shows Caddy the child, he forces her to, for 50 and then more, and then says, I'll do it, and then he flies by. That is a vicious, mean, spiteful act. He did that to hurt her. When he comes home that night to come home, he, he brings those two tickets that Earl gave him. Lester wanted those tickets. We know that for, for three days he wanted to get to that show. He could have given it, those tickets to him freely. And he played on his poverty to torture him. Give me a nickel. 
I don't have, you know, finally Dilsey says, just do it because she knows. He does everything he can to work him up to increase the pain. Just give me a nickel. Just give me a nickel. I can't, I can't. Dilsey says, finally do it. He takes them, he drops them in the fire, and burns them. There is at the center of his soul this cruelty to want to get back. And I, I believe, I really believe, this is not, psychologists would say, poor mom, poor dad, it's their fault. Or I mean, that's what the modern world does. Um, caddy, he's angry, he's angry, as if he's justified. Everything he does, Dante would say, St. Thomas would say, everything he does is a choice. He, he wasn't entitled to that job, and even if he was, at some point, you can choose to hold that against that person, or you can forgive and move on. He does, there is no forgiveness in anything he does. He makes everything, everything he looks at, he sees as bad because he didn't do it. He's a true sign of the devil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Benji is a sign of Christ. Christine. Well, he's a sign of the devil. Yeah, yeah. Benji's Benji's innocent suffering. Doug, what was your what was your description for, of um, Jason? Not seeing the truth, but spite. What did you? How'd you put it? We're talking about Jason tonight. It, everything he does is out of spite. Anyway, I hope you see that. I don't, you, we can make excuses to explain things, but at some point you have to say, those are choices that he's made, and he lives by them, and, and he, that's who he's become. So the action, the action in um, the Jason episode is this constant movement towards hurting, wounding, to get back as if he's entitled and somebody's mistreated him. Wait, is there any question about how common that is in our world? You can't turn on the news today without feeling, I mean, being aware that people feel they're wronged everywhere and the government doesn't treat them right, people don't treat them. I mean, this member, I mean, we've, we've, this has been at the court. The, the Odyssey, living in the past. Moby Dick, all of them joining in on Ahab's quest to get back at that wound. Um, that, that the center of our existence is this fall and the question of what we will do with it. And what we see in Sound of the Fury is that people cannot, will not, um, redeem the past. And at least in Jason's case, they not only will not redeem it, they will hold that over people as long as, whatever he does, he will make people suffer. Earl, his boss, Job, Oh, his co-worker, Quentin, Caddy. Um, and there's nobody he doesn't speak about insultingly. I mean, Joan hit it, you know, when this castrated guild, why don't you put him in a clown show and we can make money on him? This is his brother. Um, so in Jason, I think we're given an image of deracinated man, a man who's uprooted. It's really interesting if we look at the three men with Plato's figure, remember we did this, those of you from the beginning, Plato said that there were three faculties to the soul, the rational, the, the, the spirited, the spirited, and the appetitive, reason. The, the spiritedness, remember, was Achilles. The spiritedness is, is love directed towards noble things, honor, beauty, truth. The noble soul moves here. The appetitive is desire for earthly things, sense, physical things, cake, food, sex, 
wine, dessert. <laughs> um, um, the, the problem for Plato was how to, how to order the soul. I mean, we, you've been talking about this, how to order our loves, right? It's the great challenge, how to, or, how to make our loves good because they're not, they're disordered. It seems to me Quentin is spiritedness. He has this ideal sense of honor, but he has nothing to make it right. It collapses. Benji is, lives utterly at the mercy of his body, his sensations, and Jason is caught in his head. And what we're seeing, I think, is modern man, to call it fractured. And here's my question for you. It's really interesting. Every one of these men center their lives on caddy. When this honor code, this traditional way of looking at the world falls apart, what do men do? I'm asking this really seriously. What do men do? How do they conceive of themselves? A worker? Herbert? Make money? Get ahead? Use whoever you want to get ahead? That's that northern ideal. It's not southern. How much of the southerners made a concession to that, acquiesced to it. Where does modern man go when you lose a, any sense of these traditional values? And if modern man loses his place, who is he? Because I think that's a serious question for Benji, for Quentin, for Jason. Jason doesn't ask it, but I'm asking it on his behalf. What happens to woman? Damn it, he died, that old way of living. I mean, symbolically, we know that way's gone. What we're left with is this promiscuity. And it's interesting to me, women desire. At least they want to love or be loved. I mean, you can say whatever you need to say about promiscuity. You know, Caddy had an illegitimate child. Quentin's going off. Jason has no clue of what it means to love another person. Can you imagine it? Well, I mean, I, I obviously has sex with Lorraine. That's a financial arrangement. So I think Faulkner's showing us modern man and the predicament of the modern man once he dissociates himself from traditional values. Thank God for our church. What else can you say? Um, oh, last question. What's Jason's mode? How to describe his consciousness. This is to me, one of the most telling things about this whole book. Describe his consciousness. How is it different from Benji's consciousness and Quentin's consciousness? Come on, you guys. How is it different? Give me an example of, 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 of someone's consciousness. Well, what, what would you use? Well, here, hold. Just so in Benji, um, we get a recollection of Caddy saying, "Here, let me unsnag you." Um, this is how we do it, Benji. We just get sensations, an image of her. We never get his feelings, or we get sensations, images, um, just pure. Um, to take generally a physical form, and snagging, flowers, you know, whatever it is. In Quentin, we're in abstractions. You go back to his father's philosophizing. His father's very cynical, so we get words of his father. Um, and 
Quentin retelling or scenes in which he, things are replayed for him that are peculiar to him. And I've suggested before what's interesting about both Benji and Quentin is that Caddy's at the center of their lives in very different ways, but she's there. Um, don't, didn't you feel when you were reading the Jason story that there was a very different idiom, a very different language, a very different consciousness in the way that he saw the world related to it? It's, it's almost combative, yeah. selfish, self-centered, yeah. righteous. There was a hole where Caddy used to be that he centered around, but then again, he was that center. I don't know how that yeah. center. Yeah. He, there's that selfishness, but everything he wanted was not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Or maybe not have wanted, but what had always been there was no longer. So maybe he stuck himself there and kind of Angry, yeah. He's angry. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Turn to 238. Let me well, here, I will just go ahead to 238. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the very beginning. You guys go to 238. Very beginning of the chapter, but you go to 238. Very beginning he says, Once a bitch, always a bitch, what I say, I says, what I say, I says. How many times did he say that? How many times can you hear that in yeah, turn to page 238. This is when he sees Quentin with the guy with the red tie, and it says, he go, I, I saw red. Go down to the middle of that paragraph. I think too much of my car. I'm not going to hammer it to pieces like it was a Ford. Chances were they had stolen it anyway, so why should I give a damn? Like I say, blood always tells. If you got blood like that in you, you'll do anything. I says whatever I says. Whatever claim you believe she has on you has already been discharged. I says, from now until you have a, he go, I says, I've got to spend my life. He goes on and on and on and on like that, right? That's his idiom. On the next page, let's see, at the top of the next page, you know, you don't know what goes on, I says. You don't hear the talk that I hear, and you can just bet I shut them up too. I says, my people own slaves here when you are all running little shirt tail country stores and farming land. No nigger would look at him, middle of page 241. We could pick any page and you'd hear the same thing. Right? You've been hearing that every page. Middle of page 241. Like I say, let her lay out all day and night with everything in town that wears pants. What do I care? I don't owe anything to anybody that has no more consideration for me that wouldn't be a damn bit about planning that Ford like there and making me spend a whole afternoon in Earl taking her back there. And sure, he goes on. I says you'll have what? I go down a few lines. I says, I close my eyes. Now, what's, I mean, stop and think about this. Benji had his own idiom. We were in his mind. It was peculiar to him. Quentin had his own idiom, his own language, his own sensibility. We're in Jason's mind now, and, and that's a pattern on almost every page. What does that say about Quentin? He's reinforcing by saying, I says, as what he says, and it gives him the sense that it's right. Yeah. It, it, what other people say him. doesn't matter. What I say. Yeah. Not only yes, I couldn't agree with. Not only that. When do when do you hear people doing that? I know. I was trying to think of that. It's very familiar. Yes. <laughs> when they're in their own head. Like when they're telling a story about something that happened. You know, they're telling. To another. Yeah. Isn't that like I says? Because you're describing a story where you're narrating and, and using yourself as a character. Like I said, 
And, and then you'll have these adages, these platitudes that you keep putting in that, whose truth nobody can question. This is the way it is. So I says, like I says, blood is thicker, you know what I mean, whatever. The, it's the sort of thing you do when you're talking with another person and reporting a story um, in which you may be a character or not. But a narrative is going on and you're talking to another person. Isn't that right? Is there another person here? Huh? He's talking to himself. Is there another person there? No. No. He's creating a fictional world in which he himself lives. It's like that your brain is going, like you're inside, like you always say. But it's like you're talking to another person, and really, and it seems to me part of what you do when you keep saying, I says, like I says, that's a reaffirmation of an adage, a platitude, a truism. So, Consistently, what he's doing is justifying himself. Trying to yeah. convince himself. No. He's already convinced. Yeah, I mean, he, J- Jason, oh, that was it. Jason always thinks he's right. He, how did you put it, Doug? He, he, he never has a question that what he says is right. So he's telling the story in that language. That's the language, that's the language country folk use when they're passing on, you know. But there's nobody there. He's justifying himself, and he's doing it in a world in which he's created for himself, as if there were another there, and it's not. Is there, I mean, if you, I think you all did Dante's Commedia with me, but I don't know of anything closer to the Inferno. He's in a, a world of his own creating, and he brings to it this wanting to hurt and wound, to justify himself, to make excuses for himself, to blame everybody. It's a, for me, it's a, so this whole question of how bad do we feel for, it's a frightening, for me, it's a frightening section. It's a frightening story. When I finished the chapter, I thought back on it, and I tried to recall any time that he said something nice about someone, supported someone, complimented someone, admitted he was wrong to someone, or had anything uplifting and, and you know, positive, and I couldn't think of it. <laughs> no, I no, I don't think so. I just, no. There's the story. And that's why it's infernal. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's hard for me to, I, I've got to come back to this because it really bothers me, but it's as close, to, Dante dealt with final ends. This is after life. I mean, this, these are final ends. Nobody in the modern world deals with final ends. We're in time. But Quentin, I mean, Jason is as close to somebody living a hellish condition it's like Iago. There's only a couple of other people I know of in literature who... It's a terrifying image, it seems to me. And, and what's even more terrifying, I look at him, there, I mean, I see qualities of myself in him, and Benji and Quentin, that I've said this to you all before, if we're not reading to find ourselves here, it's frightening to look at Quentin and him, in my mind, because always right, um, only seeing the dark things, um, justifying himself. How um, much do things cost? What? How much do things cost? Yeah, and look at all that I've done for you and what I'm making everybody, I mean, like the mom, look at all I've done for you and all I've suffered for you. And if, I mean, if we don't see some aspects of those in ourselves, I think, why read? It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty dark view. So let me stop here. Let me start, and let me ask you this question before we go. It's a pretty dark view. Dilsey's the last section. We're going to get that in third person. We're going to have a narrator telling a story now. So we won't be in consciousness. 
will be outside looking at a story now. And let me put it another way. I've, I've said for each of these sections, Benji, Quentin, Jason, nothing happens. Nothing happens in the Benji story. Nothing happens in Quentin. I mean, he goes out, wanders. Nothing happens in Jason. He goes, constantly finds out about the stocks, argues with, chases his or niece, comes home, argues, goes to bed. But in Quentin's world and in um, Jason's world, I think we're watching a spiritual arrest, an infernal spiritual arrest. These people are getting as close to hell. So on the surface, we look at these people and think, Nothing's going on. You know, everything's, everything's, they're respectable. I mean, um, Jason's a quarrelsome guy. Earl says that. You know, he says, do you want me to fire you? He, he's a difficult man, but he still hired him. We're watching people go through the world and nothing happens. But when we look on what's going on inside, we're seeing something close to hell. So Faulkner's like Shakespeare in Great Right. He's making us aware we can't always trust appearances that what matters most is this interior world. We know that from Christ and Paul anyway. And in this world, it's falling apart. In the Dilsey section, we step outside of that inner consciousness that we've been in, the stream of consciousness. We're going to get um, a story of, of, of Dilsey taking um, her daughter and um, what's the the one who takes care of Benji right now, the Luster. Luster, Luster, taking um, her daughter and Luster and Benji to church. They will listen to a sermon. Dilsey will come out weeping. She will come out in tears. The, the guy who gives the sermon will just reduce her to tears, and she will have some startling things to say. Why did Faulkner do that? Is there some light that that last chapter is meant to cast on the characters? And I want to put it, is that a way of making a judgment? Faulkner doesn't judge. We don't have anybody. But if you put that next, that last episode next to the others, how do we come away? And then this ultimate question that I've been asking, why Easter weekend? Is Christ here? If he came for sinners, what do we do with that in this work? Let me leave that because that's okay. No, I'm going to wait, Doc. Everybody, look at your calendars and just sort of look at the next few Sundays and see if it works for you guys, or if Sunday doesn't work, if another day is.